Hi, Brian Tokar. Welcome to KABU. Always good to be here, Bill. Brian Tokar is an activist, author. He is a leader and educator of the Institute for Social Ecology in Vermont. And he's written a lot of books, among them The Green Alternative, Toward Climate Justice. His latest book is Climate Justice and Community Renewal. So, Brian, lots of folks have a hypothesis, and I agree. Now, for sure, climate change denial has become a dead letter. For sure, many people and countries are now deeply injured by drought, storms, sea level rise. And for sure, a great majority of the world's population is increasingly concerned with climate change, and they're seeking action. So the hypothesis is that the two programs have emerged, one from the left, the other from the big multinational corporations, and the rest of the uh, big ownership class and finance. Now, in that hypothesis, it's recognized that there are many organizations that don't fit that pattern. Some left organizations are backing um, capital, the better to get them to take meaningful action. Some businesses would benefit from local public utilities. And for sure, neither the left nor capital have organized great conclaves, great meetings to hammer out their programs. There's no official program, but still their intentions and their planned components are becoming clear as both take climate change seriously, both pursue their uh, corporations, take it seriously, but want to drag out their current way of operating for a long time, but both pursue their various projects, both engage in legislative and regulatory struggles, both are hunting and competing for state, federal, foundation grants, also venture capital investments and bank support. And as for capital, they make great greenwashing claims of promising developments, and they introduce new products. And both are seeking to find and organize allies and, and promote their solution. So what do you think of the hypothesis? What's your sense of the struggle? Well, I think you're basically correct, Bill. But I think it's worth pointing out that in a lot of ways, I think there's still a spectrum of views, both on the corporate in the corporate class and among the left, on how to move forward with solutions to the climate crisis. I think you're correct that overt denialism of the climate crisis is very much on the wane, although there are certainly still elements of the right wing, especially here in the U.S., that continue to claim that climate change is a hoax and that it's just natural causes and, and all of that sort of thing. But I think the dominant trend in the corporate world is a shift from overt denialism to trying to delay the transition as much as possible. So where capitalists do support a transition to renewable energy. It tends toward mega scale projects, some of which are incredibly destructive, maybe not comparable to something like mining the tar sands in Canada, but causing substantial damage to sensitive ecosystems, to uh, mountaintops and ridgelines, to sensitive lands along the coast. I remember reading about a, a big struggle near the coast of Oaxaca in Mexico where corporations were trying to gobble up a lot of indigenous land to build massive scale wind developments. And those are the kinds that are, of course, as I'm sure listeners would expect, the ones that are most conducive to capitalists continuing to make profits on them. The other end of the spectrum, as you've hinted at, is 
the smaller scale, locally controlled transitions toward renewable energy that I think most of the left supports. Although, you know, I think for those of us who have a sense of urgency about moving forward with real climate solutions, I think there's an acceptance that, at least in the short term, there will probably be a mix of smaller scale and larger scale projects. Of course, the question is, can communities retain some sense of control over some of the larger scale projects that are being proposed. I mean, we talk about things like offshore wind, which is growing at a huge pace in Europe. It's just really beginning to be talked about in a serious way here in the U.S. But for example, where I live in north central Vermont, we are very concerned about protecting our sensitive habitat, including ridgelines. And ultimately, that will likely mean importing a certain amount of electricity from offshore wind turbines, say off the coast of Maine. But there are people in Maine who are raising serious concerns about its effects on the lobster fishery and other ecosystemic issues there. So, you know, there is no path to a renewable future that doesn't raise issues that are, are really complex. And ultimately, we have to also be very clear about the need to confront the fundamental problem of consumption. And we know that under capitalism, under an economic system that imposes patterns of continual growth and expansion and concentrated accumulation of capital, it's very difficult to talk about reducing consumption. And we have, you know, a 60, 70 year massive scale sales effort to try to convince people here in the U.S. and other rich countries that we need to keep buying more and more and more and more tremendous amounts of waste. We really need to address the consumption issue really head on if we're going to move toward a genuinely renewable and, and sustainable future where life can continue to thrive. Yeah, let's pursue a number of the issues you brought up. First, as to capital, in order to uh, recognize what will be a disastrous failure of the capitalist program, and in fact, a constant increase in consumption. No firm or no industry will accept it. They'll fight for their future, and none of them will accept the kinds of limits that are necessary. Each of them wants to grow. If they're not growing, they're in fact losing out to some other firm in the industry. And all of them yeah, they'll be bought up, they'll, their assets will be liquidated, their shareholders will revolt, etc. Yeah, they have to keep going and keep building markets and building themselves market share, or they, if they don't, any group of executives of any company who doesn't show that group who in fact begins losing they're jettisoned. They're kicked out. This dynamic of the capitalist growth imperative is why we see, for example, a lot of fossil fuel companies now starting to pay lip service to the need for a transition, but trying to delay it, trying to slow it down as much as possible. Saying, for example, oh, we know that we need to take climate change seriously, but it's not an emergency. It's not a crisis. We can take our time, we can transition slowly, and then the next 
stage of the substitute for overt denialism is this notion of focusing on very long-term goals companies say will be net zero by 2050. And that's still a pretty long time away. It's 30 years, which is short in the world of climate science and increasing climate threats, but it's a long time in the world of corporations. A friend of mine who's a key climate justice activist in Germany used to say, pledging to go fossil fuel free by 2050 is about the equivalent of saying we'll have colonies on Mars in 2050. Any politician or corporate spokesperson can make those kinds of claims without having to make any serious commitments. And then the whole notion of net zero is basically an accounting trick to create a scenario where at some point in the distant future, their internal operations for the oil companies, they almost never talk about phasing out their products, but they talk about going net zero in their internal operations. And then net zero is an accounting trick where a lot of it is a lot of their continued pollution is nominally offset by purchases of offset credits, by renewable energy credits, by interests in tropical forests and forest plantations, huge land grab in the global south in the name of so-called carbon offsets, a large proportion of which have been demonstrated to be completely fraudulent. Yeah, and they claim they're protecting these forests, but in fact, when you add everything up, and sometimes they may in fact protect the forests, it doesn't lead to a reduction in greenhouse gas concentrations, which just keep going up and up and up, thanks to, of course, these companies. Um, right. My sense is that when people recognize, as they did in, in World War II, the United States, most people, in fact, wanted to stay out of the war for a very long time. They didn't want to get involved in these foreign wars and lose a lot of soldiers. The attack on Pearl Harbor really changed things. Immediately, there was support for recognize the threat to the United States of these fascist powers with world domination as their goal. It became very clear, and they accepted austerity without any question. That is, they accepted rationing. There was full employment and period of great shared commitment in the United States. Everybody who, who was able in any way to work went into the workforce the war was, of course, terrible, but for on the home front, people were supported and saw themselves. They could not buy automobiles because the factories were building tanks, and many other products were in short supply. Canned food became more of a nourishment. I think that could happen. They're going to see that, in fact, the whole world productive system is endangered and that they have to... Uh, except the period of, quote, austerity. And we don't talk about that. We talk about the other fulfillments that would be made possible even in the austerity system. People can join choirs rather than riding through the underbrush and over virgin lands as a thrill. I mean, people do change. There's 
Anyway, that's, I want to make that point that we're going to see the possibility of change and great use reduction, energy conservation, support for uh, energy conservation and use reduction. So this is Bill Resnick talking to Brian Tokar for the Old Mole Variety Hour on KBU 90.7 FM Portland. So far, we've discussed the emergence of two forces, one on the left, the other corporations, and the rest of the ownership class. They're competing for the authority to direct the nations and indeed the world's response to climate change. Coming up in the interview, we compare the two and their programs as to the speed of installation, as to its cost and necessity of rapid installation, and we compare them to the cost, reliability, their impacts on democracy, participation. And indeed, in discussing the human future, we are faced with the question whether the corporate system will work at all, or will it lead to, at minimum, billions of human deaths, or perhaps the fourth great extinction, including humans. So the choice of energy system is really important. First on valuation, let's compare, Brian, the speed of installation and why that's now so important. Well, everything we know from contemporary climate science makes it clear that we need a very rapid phasing out and eventual elimination of greenhouse gas pollution, the vast majority of which comes from the combustion of fossil fuels. And that means we need a completely different energy system. We need to heat our homes differently. We need to get around differently. We need to run industries to the extent that we still need them in different ways than what we've come to take for granted. And we also know that fossil fuel-driven systems tend to be still far more profitable than the alternatives. So the resources need to come to a significant degree from the public sector in order to be able to accelerate this transition. We know that capitalists are able to build large-scale facilities sometimes more quickly if the incentives exist. And if we're going to establish the kind of decentralized, locally controlled, more democratic renewable energy system that we know we need, both for technical reasons and political reasons, the public sector is going to need to jumpstart this transition. We know that in pure efficiency terms, solar and wind energy are already cheaper than fossil energy. 10 or 15 years ago, we achieved a transition point where it was clearly cheaper to build new solar and wind installations than new fossil fuel installations. Now, in 2023, in most of the world, we're at the point where it's cheaper to build new solar and wind power installations than to even keep operating, than to sustain the maintenance and fueling of fossil fuel installations. Unfortunately, that's still not good enough for the capitalists because they've got the capital invested. They're concerned about what's called the stranding of their assets, productive assets no longer being able to be usable for their full life cycle. And we know that there are still concerns that renewable energy might not proved to be as profitable. So we really need to keep pushing. It's really a political struggle to further the transition. And we need to do it in sustainable ways. But we also know that in places like 
here in Vermont, we can't get enough solar and wind energy without endangering some of our most important ecosystems, like the ridgelines of our mountains, which is the only place where the wind is strong enough and steady enough for wind power to be economically viable on more than a very small scale. So we'll probably need to import some of our wind energy from offshore installations on the coast of Maine. And folks in Maine have raised legitimate concerns about the ecosystem impacts of those installations, the people involved in the lobster fishery, which Maine, of course, has been famous for as long as anybody can remember our concern about especially the construction phase of large-scale wind installations. At the same time, we know that in Northern Europe, they're building a lot of offshore wind and are figuring out how to solve some of these problems. So the transition is going to be complex. It's going to be multifaceted, but still much of it will not be to the liking of investors who have gotten used to the vastly disproportionate profitability of fossil fuels. That's why we need to keep fighting for this transition to happen as rapidly as possible, because we're reaching climate tipping points that may be irreversible. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is telling us that the only way to avoid the most severe climate impacts is to get off fossil fuels as quickly as possible. If the world is to get off fossil fuels, say, by 2050, that means that here in the wealthier countries, we need to get off fossil fuels much faster than that because places like India are going to most likely have a significantly slower transition than we are. So we're literally talking about phasing out fossil fuel infrastructure here in the U.S. and in Western Europe and other wealthy areas in the next eight to 10 years. We don't have a whole lot more time than that. So it's a political struggle. It's a major economic shift. Of course, we need to look at the conditions of people who work in polluting industries, the whole just transition strategy that initially evolved as an alliance between environmental justice activists and the labor movement back in the, the 1980s and 90s has taken a, an important renewed meaning as we talk about the need for a rapid energy transition. A lot of the unions involved in the fossil fuel industry are very resistant to this because they don't see the same level of wages in renewable energy that they've gotten used to in extractive industries. Indigenous peoples around the world are concerned about the impact of mining, and we need to accelerate work toward recycling of precious metals and other materials that are still central to the renewable energy economy. There are a lot of complexities that as a political movement, we really need to be very forthright about. Brian Tokar, tell us a little bit about your uh, the Institute for Social Ecology and uh, your latest book. Yes, check out the Institute at social-ecology.org. We have a huge program of online classes that began to expand during the pandemic. Participation in those classes is very international. There's a whole new cycle starting now in mid-February, another cycle being planned for April. We're going to have a, our first in-person intensive since the pandemic later this 
Spring in Detroit, and lots of other information and resources, online events. Kali Akuno from Cooperation Jackson has been hosting a series of discussions about the present and future of the climate movement that you can find on the Social Ecology YouTube channel. And my latest book is an edited collection that I worked on with Tamara Gilbertson from the Indigenous Environmental Network. It's called Climate Justice and Community Renewal. It's an international collection of writing on opposition to extractivism, resistance to false climate solutions, and community-based positive alternatives from literally all around the world. We have brilliant contributors from all over Latin America, from India, from Europe, as well as North America, and I encourage folks to check it out. It's published in 2020 by Rutledge in the UK. Their prices tend to be on the high side, but they frequently post pretty good discount offers on both their print and and electronic publications. So check out Climate Justice and Community Renewal and check out social-ecology.org. Brian Tucker, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks, Bill. Always a pleasure to be on the old mole.